Hello and welcome to Tales from the Tubules, brought to you by the NSMC 2021 Tetrapod. My name is Mike and I'm an internal medicine resident at Allegheny General Hospital in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I tweet at MichaelTurk6. Hi, and my name is Shweta and I'm a pediatric nephrologist at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. And I tweet at Nephron1310. Hello, I am Juan. I am a second year nephrology fellow and I tweet at UAAJAL. Hello, my name is Bolan Lee. I'm a clinical nephrologist at the Obafemi Awolowo University Teaching Hospital, Nigeria. I tweet at Dr. Underscore Homoti. Today we have two interesting cases to discuss with you. Let's jump right into them. The first is of a 59-year-old male with a past medical history of hypertension and hyperlipidemia who presented as a transfer from an outside hospital to the neurology service due to concerns for a stroke. He was found unconscious at home and brought into the local ED by EMS and found to have bilateral subacute strokes on brain imaging. He was recently diagnosed with a left upper extremity DVT as an outpatient for which he was started on a NOAC. Incidentally, his blood work at the time showed an AKI with creatinine elevated to the 2 range from a baseline of 1, albumin of 1.5, and a urine protein to creatinine ratio greater than 2,000 mg per gram. An echo was obtained on admission that showed a large PFO. Dopplers of the deep vasculature showed a left IJ clot. He was treated with heparin and monitored over the course of his stay, which was complicated by difficult-to-control blood pressures despite being on five antihypertensive agents, worsening hyponatremia and AKI, for which nephrology was consulted. Initial evaluation by the nephro service was on hospital day 5. Physical exam was significant for left-sided facial swelling, left greater than right arm edema, sacral scrotal, and bilateral leg edema. Repeat urinalysis showed 3-plus protein, 1 plus blood, and a spot protein creatinine ratio of 3.8. There's a lot going on. Quickly summing it up, we have a middle-aged man who was admitted for bilateral strokes and then was evaluated by nephrology, service for hypertension, nephrotic range proteinuria, and AKI. So we're thinking nephrotic syndrome at this time? Yeah, it's important to identify nephrotic syndrome as it has metabolic effects that can have an impact on the patient's health. Nephrotic syndrome is characterized by nephrotic range proteinuria of more than 3.5 grams in 24-hour urine, hypoalbuminemia, hyperlipidemia, and hypercoagulability. Usually, the etiology of nephrotic syndrome is suggested from the history, physical examination, and serology, but in most cases, a biopsy is needed to establish the diagnosis. So I guess one would think that in any idiopathic nephrotic syndrome, a biopsy is probably warranted to differentiate minimal change, FSGS and membranous nephropathy. You're right, you're right, Shrita. The most common biopsy finding in nephrotic syndrome is membranous nephropathy, and we need to rule out causes of it like hepatitis B or autoimmune diseases. Also, we have to remember to consider primary membranous nephropathy with antibody against phospholipase A2 receptors. Minimal change disease can be found in patients with medications like NSAIDs or as a paraneoplastic effect of malignancy from Hodgkin lymphoma. So I guess in those situations, perhaps a biopsy may not be warranted, right? If you have a secondary cause like NSAID exposure or a, or a tumor or like frank diabetes, right? Even though it's highly suggested, I think you could argue sometimes you would want to do the biopsy or you could just treat 
without a biopsy if you have highly suspicion of it. I believe, Shrita, that in pediatric nephrology, usually you treat first before biopsy, since minimal change disease is so common. True. Yeah, that's what, that's what you normally do. Yeah. I think we tend to biopsy more in adults than we do in children. Continuing, we have primary or secondary FSGS, which can also be found with nephrotic syndrome. Primary FSGS patients present in a more acute manner versus secondary FSGS, which present in a more insidious way, and they are associated to systemic diseases like diabetes or HIV. Always SLE is important autoimmune disease to rule out since it can have an array of presentations in renal biopsy, which will then determine the treatment for the patient. Monoclonal diseases could also present with nephrotic syndrome, and we should order UPEP, SPEP, immunofixation, free light chains as causes for nephrotic syndrome. So in summary, the serologic workup needed alongside a good history are ANA, C3, C4, serum-free light chains, immunofixation, UPEP, SPEP, syphilis, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and cryoglobulins. So to conclude, a good history with a pertinent serologic workup leading to biopsy will be helpful in diagnosis and then treating our patients with GN. So in this patient, he did fulfill the criteria for nephrotic syndrome. Other workup was negative for hepatitis B, HIV. His hemoglobin A1C was normal, but he did have hypocomplementemia. So in this case, Shweta, do you think he needs a biopsy? I would think so. I think if you're thinking hypocomplementemia and with all everything else that's going on, I think we need to figure out whether this is hypocomplementemia from like lupus or uh, like an MPGN picture or like a, any other etiology for hypocomplementemic GN. Especially, I mean, we would probably wait till he's hemodynamically stable and blood pressures are better controlled. But, you know, all procedures have its complications. So biopsy, I'm sure, is not without its complication. And, and particularly in someone who has high blood pressure or AKI, and even studies have shown that complication rates are higher in those who are hospitalized and have a higher BUN or low platelet count. And I mean, even if, even if serious complications like death and serious bleeding are low, Hematoma is often seen in about 10 to 15% of all biopsies. So although biopsy would be indicated, we would probably have to be judicious in deciding when to do it. Definitely. So for him, his difficult-to-control hypertension was certainly a risk factor. By the day of the procedure, it was down to approximately 140 systolic from about 180 to 190 when we had first met him on the nephrology service. Unfortunately, though, it was still complicated by retroperitoneal hematoma. The results were intriguing, though. Class 3 and Class 5 lupus nephritis. So what do you think about that, Balanlea? Can you talk to us a little bit about what Class 3 and Class 5 mean? Class 3 just means that there's a proliferated lupus nephritis, while Class 5 is a membranous lupus nephritis. To wrap up this case, our patient is a 59-year-old man with past medical history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and a recent diagnosis of left hopper um, divin thrombosis. He was brought into the HED with features of stroke. Examination was significant for left-sided facial swelling, edema of the upper limb, more on the left side, sacral and scrotal edema. He also had difficult to control hypertension. His serum creatinine rose twice the baseline value. He had hyponitremia, hypoalbuminemia. Proteinuria in nephrotic range, had blood by dipstick, low C3C4, HANA and double stranded DNA were positive. Renal biopsy revealed 
a combination of class five and class three. And to sum it up, our patient presented with systemic lupus erythematosus with renal and neurological manifestations. So to sum up the learning points of this case, lupus in males is uncommon, but should always be considered on a broad differential. It can present with thromboembolic events due to the hypercoagulable state, either from the nephrotic syndrome or from hypertension. When doing any procedure on a patient, you need to discuss and monitor for complications closely as relate to his kidney biopsy. Thanks. This was awesome. Yeah, thank you. Juan, you want to take it away for our next case? This case, she's a 33-year-old with SLE since she's 13 years of age, with multiple complications like avascular necrosis of bilateral femur, head, calcaneus, complications of uh, diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, exposed to multiple immune suppression regimens. And we started following this patient around 2015 when she presented with nephrotic range proteinuria and was diagnosed with lupus nephritis class 5 by kidney biopsy. She was stable with MMF until we started tapering it down due to leukopenia and was switched to belimumab. During this time, she developed a flare, developed pulmonary embolism, and we found out she was six weeks pregnant. So at that time, her regimen was belimumab, prednisone, hydroxychloroquine, and we changed belimumab to acythioprine when we found out she was six weeks pregnant. Let's first discuss pregnancy counseling lupus nephritis patient. Why is it important to counsel patients against pregnancy? And how do we guide our patients into a safe pregnancy during lupus nephritis? Yeah, Juan, I think that's like a really important topic. And for pediatric nephrology, we see a lot of teen patients with lupus. So I think counseling is definitely important, not only to prevent pregnancy during periods of high disease activity, but also so that we have a chance to actually modify their immunosuppression so that they're like not exposed to a lot of teratogenic medications that some of this lupus regimen includes. Right. We're trying to find... Yeah. We're trying to find what's safer for the patient and for the baby as well. So a planned Absolutely. pregnancy is what it's going to take us to have safety for both of our patients. Yeah, and, and you know this could actually give a lot of opportunity to ask questions about what could be the outcomes for pregnancy and even for the fetal outcomes, as, as you mentioned. So, I mean, generally, I think the literature says that at least remission for 6 to 12 months is important prior to planning for a pregnancy to prevent adverse pregnancy outcome and, and flare of lupus. So Right. Six to 12 months mm -hmm. during the yep. pregnancy-safe medications, which is also important. Not only, not only remission for six months, but also while on the pregnancy-safe medications. Right. So active lupus nephritis and, and poor serologies, including high titers of DSDNA or anti-ROLA and uh, antiphospholipid antibodies, have shown to be having worse outcomes. So... I think controlling the disease activity and keeping a safe period of remission before a pregnancy is planned definitely will have a better outcome for the child and the mother. Right. So now that we went into medications and we were talking about the time frame on remission on safe pregnancy medications, let's talk a little, a little bit more about that. So this patient, as I said, was changed from belimumab to acethioprine. Hydroxychloroquine was kept at the same dose. Prednisone was increased. Let's discuss a little more about which medications are safe, which ones are indicated, and which ones have shown to be safer during pregnancy and have better outcomes. Yeah, so I prepared a little bit about this topic. We don't really see a lot of pregnant patients in internal medicine residency, to be quite honest with you. It is really important to kind of learn about this because taking care of the whole patient is of the utmost importance. For starters, hydroxychloroquine 
has very strong evidence for its use during pregnancy for the treatment and prevention of flares. Actually, discontinuation of it is strongly associated with increased risk of flares. Even in patients that aren't on it previously, you can initiate hydroxychloroquine safely in patients with lupus who are planning for a pregnancy. In the synthetic disease-modifying drug class, cyclosporine, azathioprine, and tacrolimus have been studied extensively and are all safe to use during pregnancy. On the other hand, cyclophosphamide, mycophenolate, and rituximab should all be avoided and actually discontinued prior to conception with a three to six month washout period necessary to avoid their associated fetal risks. Now, if you are pregnant and you have an acute flare, we do have a few options, the first of which is non-fluorinated steroids. So that's like your prednisone, hydrocortisone, prednisolone type steroids. And those are preferred to the fluorinated ones like dexamethasone, for example because the non-fluorinated steroids that are inactivated by placental enzymes, and so they pose minimal fetal risk. NSAIDs, on the other hand, can be used for short periods of time during the first or second trimesters of a pregnancy to control symptoms of active disease. We should really be avoiding those during the conception and planning period, as well as during the third trimester, and we should not use them for longer than a week at a time to avoid risk of premature closure of the ductus arteriosus and oligohydramnios. Excellent. This particular patient had a normal renal function with a creatinine of 0.5 mg of a deciliter. Her proteinuria increased and peaked at 8 grams in 24-hour urine. So after treatment with azathioprine, steroids, hydroxychloroquine, her proteinuria decreased and is now around 2 to 3 grams. Her baby is small for gestational age at 36 weeks pregnant. Let's talk a little bit more now about renal function decline and maybe some indications for dialysis. Okay, good. Doha patients did well on treatment, we didn't have a cost to dialyze, and the renal function improved. But it's important to note that there would be some patients that would have decline in renal function in the course of treatment. Pregnancy is said to have short and long-term adverse effects on the kidney function. It increases the risk of lupus flare in those that already has lupus, and also increases the risk of progression of active lupus to end-stage renal disease. The risk of progression is determined in part by the severity of the underlying renal disease, meaning the class of the lupus nephritis the patient has, especially class three and four, are more likely going to progress, and is set to increase in patients with high creatinine values above 1.4 milligrams per dL. Usually active lupus at the time of conception or new onset lupus or a flare during pregnancy also increases the risk of maternal morbidity. And this includes the risk of preeclampsia, eclampsia, and hypertension. And this actually has a toll on renal function too. Let's quickly talk about the indication for hemodialysis in pregnancy or pregnant lupus patients. Though there are no consensus or guidelines in managing lupus nephritis as regards dialysis, but it's, it's important to know that there are some factors to consider while, are, while we are considering hemodialysis in our patients. It's important to know the gestational age, the renal function trajectory, the fluid balance, biochemical parameters, blood pressure, especially when you have difficult to control blood pressure, and uremic symptoms. The most important thing of this is the patient's serum urea level. And it's been said that dialysis should be considered when serum urea is greater than 17 millimoles per liter. In terms of prescription of the hemodialysis in lupus or pregnancy in general, it's important that they have more frequent dialysis 
about the duration of between 24 to 36 hours per week. And this comes down to about five to seven sessions in a week during pregnancy. It's also important for us to keep pre-dialytic urea as low as possible. Minimum epiranization is important and use of biocompatible membranes while we're pre prescribing EHD is also important. We should avoid electrolyte derangement, hypocalcemia, hypokalemia, and we recommend that the dialysate fluid concentration of potassium should be between 3 and 3.5, while that of calcium should be about 1.5 millimoles per liter. It's also important to monitor the electrolytes, especially weekly. To avoid metabolic acidosis too in them, we should keep our bicarbonates as low as possible, lower than about 25 millimoles per liter. Also towards the second and third trimester of pregnancy, the dry weight should increase. We should increase our dry weight by about 300 to 500 milligrams every seven to 10 days until delivery. And after delivery, the patient can be switched back to normal three times dialysis per week. Well, I can't imagine a pregnant patient and then having to go through dialysis five to six treatments a week. I had a patient once pregnant requiring dialysis, not lupus, and it was four hours treatment five times a week. I can only imagine the burden of that for the patients. Let's now continue to the management of pregnant patients with lupus nephritis. Apart from immune suppression management, there are other considerations like hypercoagulable states, and some might have indications for aspirin. So our patient was negative for antiphospholipid syndrome, but this is not the only factor that confers patient hypercoagulability. So what else can we talk about this? You're right, Joanne. Hypercoagulability is usually associated with the presence of antiphospholipid antibodies in patients with lupus. But you should consider that there are other factors that can predispose them to thrombosis. Severe proteinuria in them increases the risk of DVT and renal vein thrombosis. Also, systemic hypertension and hyperlipidemic states usually frequent in them and have been associated with thrombosis. So, in patients with lupus nephritis, Irrespective of the antiphospholipid antibody status, we should also consider managing severe proteinuria in them, hyperlipidemia, and their hypertension. It's important for us to anticoagulate them, especially using aspirin in the first, second, and probably the third trimester. Wow, guys, I'm learning so much about pregnancy and lupus. This is great. No, it is. It is great. And I think different perspective from our lupus nephritis patients. And just to add something to end my case here, this patient actually had her baby. So it was, it was a healthy baby. Everything went okay. She's happy with her baby. That's great to hear. That's yeah. awesome, yeah. Congratulations yep. to her and her family. Just to end our podcast, and let's just give some takeaway points about lupus nephritis and pregnancy. First of all, counseling is important for a safe and planned pregnancy in lupus nephritis patients. Intrauterine device is usually safer than estrogen-based oral contraceptives. Minimum of six months remission on pregnancy-safe medication is necessary to decrease the maternal and fetal risks. It's important to understand pregnancy-safe medications in lupus nephritis patients. When to try to avoid these medications, like mycophenolate, cyclophosphamide, rituximab, obelimumab, and the safe medications are azathioprine, hydroxychloroquine, steroids, of course, plasmapheresis, and IVIG. 
uh, calcineurin inhibitors as well can be used. And a lot of data that we have for these calcineurin inhibitors are from renal transplant. We have to manage the other risks that these lupus nephritis pregnant patients has, especially hypercoagulability. And hemodialysis is really strenuous in our lupus nephritis pregnant patients. We, we got to the end of our first experiment with NSMC podcast, Tales of the Tubules. Thanks, guys. It was a great teamwork and it was fun making the podcast. It was a great experience for me. Thanks for tuning in to Tales for the Tubules and we'll catch you on the visual abstract rotation. Mm-hmm.